It's the first ever Caustic Soda fundraiser. Caustic Soda has been provided free for four years, and we wish to continue doing so. With this fundraising campaign, we hope to pay for web hosting, maintain and upgrade our recording and editing equipment, and produce promotional materials to help attract new high-caliber guests and hang on to our favorites from seasons past. We have always been a hobby podcast, a labor of love, but with a bit of extra scratch. We hope to provide our researchers, guestberts, and you, our listeners, with a few tokens of appreciation, such as a handcrafted caustic soda magnetic bottle cap, stickers, buttons, new season 5 t-shirt, knitted toques, personalized thank you messages placed in season 5 episodes, custom-made audio skits from the hosts, an opportunity to be a guest on an episode, and much more. Head over to Indiegogo.com and search for Caustic Soda or visit CausticSodaPodcast.com for details. And if you've already donated, thank you. Who's this strange soldier in my funk hole? I'm Kevin Leeson. What kind of a sap digs towards the enemy? I'm Jordan Pratt. Either army bacon smells terrible, or these corpses smell delicious. I'm Joe Fulgham. Gas attack. Finally a reason to pee in your face. I'm Torn Atkinson, and this is... Caustic Soda! It's the Caustic Soda Podcast! That's what I'm here to do. So it makes me very hungry to introduce to you Jordan Pratt! But now let's get things started. Why don't you get things started? It's time to get things started on the informational, aberrational, strangulational, nauseational, strapped in for the classic soda show! It was 9am, and a so-called trench was full of corpses and all sorts of equipment. We stood and sat on bodies as if they were stones or logs or wood. Nobody worried if one had its head stuck through or torn off, or a third party had gory bones sticking out through its torn coat. And outside the trench, one could see them lying in every kind of position. There was one quite young little chap, a Frenchman, sitting in a shell hole, with his rifle on his arm and his head bent forward, but he was holding his hands as if to protect himself in front of his chest in which there was a deep bayonet wound. And so they lay in all their different positions, mostly Frenchmen, with their heads battered in by blows from mallets or even spades. A heap of five corpses lay just this side of the barrier. We were constantly having to tread on them to try to squash them down in the mud because in consequence of the gunfire, we couldn't get them out of the trench. Our feelings gradually became quite blunted. Yeah. A Frenchman stepladder. 
That's from August Hope was the guy's name. Oh, well, he had surprisingly little of it. <laughs> you know, when you decorate the floor of your trench with Frenchmen, you do get a nice paisley pattern. Trench comes uh, possibly from the Latin truncare, to cut or top off. And the urban dictionary definition of trench warfare uh-huh. is when you pound someone in their stench trench and you shoot their, your missiles into the bunker. I thought, okay, I just uh, went to Urban Dictionary to see what stench trench went, meant, because I thought it meant uh, butt crack, actually. Stench trench. No, mm-hmm. But it actually means yeah. a smelly vagina. Mm. Oh. Oh, mm-hmm. right then. Okay. I wouldn't call that a bunker either. A bunker would be butt to me. Well, who says that Urban Dictionary is correct? Not me. The crowd. Carl Urban, evidently. That's his dictionary. Now, if you're going to be fighting in trench, for, trench warfare, here's a few of the phobias you don't want to have. All right. Lay it on me. Claustrophobia. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Taphophobia, the fear of being enclosed or being buried alive. Oh, right. that one's probably really important not to have. Traumatophobia, the fear of injury. Uh, that yeah. goes without saying. Ballistophobia, the fear of missiles or bullets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And francophobia, the fear of France or French culture. <laughs> <laughs> was there a lot of culture in trench warfare in World War One? There were several cultures. Yeah, <laughs> clashing. <laughs> cultures. Yeah. Yeah. There was a culture of uh, you know not going over the top. Uh, that one didn't last very long. There was a lot of French culture scattered in bits all over the ground near the end. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Jordan Pratt. I just heard. Mm-hmm. But what are his bona fides? I think you guys just have me on because you know that I spent a lot of time in the rain digging trenches. Uh-huh. That's true. And by a strange coincidence, I actually just got back from Flanders. I was in Europe for two weeks, and I spent about 12 hours wandering around World War One battlefields. He's there a murderly erdler. Yep. <laughs> Oh, the Flanders Fields. Flanders uh-huh. Fields, yeah. Uh-huh. You didn't spend time in the fictional Simpsons character? No, I sure <laughs> diddly didn't. <laughs> okay. Diddly did not. Trench warfare is a form of land warfare using occupied fighting lines consisting largely of trenches in mm-hmm. which troops are significantly protected from the enemy's small arms fire and are substantially sheltered from artillery. The most prominent case of trench warfare is the Western Front in World War I. It has become a byword for stalemate, attrition, and futility in conflict. I remember in high school learning the term, it was a war of attrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, World War I, war of attrition. They kind of went, it was like, if it were a sequel to a movie, it'd be World War I, colon, war of attrition. Yeah, it sounds like a metal band. Yeah. Attrition. It probably is a metal band, attrition, <laughs> now that I think about I would, it. Yeah. If there isn't, there should soon be one. Trench warfare occurred when a revolution in firepower was not matched by similar advances in mobility, resulting in a grueling form of warfare in which the defender held the advantage. In World War One, both sides constructed elaborate trench and dugout systems opposing each other along a front protected from assault by barbed wire. The area between opposing trench lines, known as no man's land, mm-hmm. was fully exposed to art- artillery fire from both sides. Attacks, even if successful, often sustain severe casualties as a matter of course. So that middle part was just full of women and children then? There's just no men? There's oh, no dude's fine. land. Yeah. yeah. I think it's because once you get out there, you start crying like a little girl. Ah, I see. <laughs> You're no man in that land. <laughs> I, I would be. The idea of digging into the ground to give some protection from powerful enemy artillery and small arms fire was not a new idea or unique to the Great War. It had widely been practiced in the U.S. Civil War, the Russian-Japanese War, and other fairly recent wars. Trench warfare can be said to have begun in September 1914 and ended when the Allies made a breakthrough attack in August 1918. Before and after those dates were wars of movement. In between, it was a war of entrenchment. The massive armies of 1914 initially fought a war of movement, and any trenches dug were only for temporary cover. But from the Battle of the Aisne? Aisne? Okay. Aisne? 
possibly French <laughs> onwards. Both sides dug in to take cover and hold their ground. The successive movements to upflank uh, the enemy trenches came to an end by November 14th. By then, there was a continuous line of trenches covering some 400 miles from Switzerland to the North Sea. There was no way around. Yeah, because, you know, one side dug a trench and then the other side tried to attack it and got their asses handed to them. They called it the race to the sea. Uh-huh. Mm. Who can build more trenches faster and try and outflank each other? And it's, oh, we're at the water. Okay, stop, everybody. <laughs> All the water's coming in. It's on you, Navy. <laughs> I, get, I feel like if air power had been better, that it would have kept this trench warfare from becoming so deeply entrenched, right? Like if, if planes could have gone over and really laid the boots to anybody sitting in these trenches. Right. If the yeah, they air had, power they had, had been planes. More, they had bombs, I assume, didn't they? Didn't yeah, they, but they, they dropped them out over the edge. Yeah, like it was literally a guy it. holding right. it out to the side of the thing and like dropping it. Or underneath, like, maybe. Yeah. Dropping like a large grenade, basically. Air, air power was was severely underutilized um, in the First World War. It, it The development came along very quickly. In about four years, we went from uh, shooting bolt-action hunting rifles at each other in airplanes to these huge, really flimsy, slow-flying bombers, which could actually bomb trenches. But the fatality rate in bomber crews was so high because it was just a wooden kite full of highly flammable uh-huh. canvas <laughs> and shellac. <laughs> That uh, air power was just not really taken seriously in World War One the way it should have. Except for by Richthofen. Yeah, he just added, he's, he was selling people the sizzle, but I don't think en- enough of a sizzle to really make a difference. Right. I just like saying Richthofen. Well, who doesn't? Mm-hmm. Of course, there was lots of uh, chemical warfare in World War One, mm-hmm. But we'll have a chemical warfare episode. Yeah. And uh, But, we'll, of course, we'll touch on mustard gas and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, pre-World War One was 627 A.D., the Battle of the Trench, oh. as it was known. Wow. A two-week-long siege of the city of Yathrib by Arab and Jewish tribes. The vastly outnumbered Muslims dug a trench which the attackers could not pass on their horses and camels. Oh. So were there people in the trench, or was it just... No. It was just... It was just a trench. There might have been some people in the It trench. was just a ditch. It was just a ditch. Oh, really? Yeah. It was a moat, but there was no water. <laughs> but they called it the Battle of the Trench. Okay. Uh, so I included it. Okay. No, that's cool. I, I mean, I guess anybody who was in that trench just liked upskirt shots or something. Trying to like, yeah, that's you know. right. <laughs> well, look at it this way. That's actually a pretty brilliant move. If they had made it a tunnel instead of a, tr- a ditch, it wouldn't have stopped anybody. Yeah. So yeah. that's actually pretty pretty brilliant. But they would avoid, I'm just trying to give them credit. They here. would have avoided fighting. Yeah. <laughs> just hiding I in their mean, tunnel. Yeah. The only difference between this and a moat around a castle mm-hmm. is that they lived in a semi-arid desert. I suppose so. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not even semi-arid, totally arid. They realized they couldn't get enough water to fill it. Oh, <laughs> I, I guess for I guess we're building a trench. I guess it's not a fortification a then. Yeah, <laughs> the crocodiles were really unhappy though. Yeah, they're all waiting in the wings. Yeah, <laughs> anytime. So dry out here. <laughs> 1864, American Civil War, the Battle of the Crater. Oh, this is in Virginia. So we fought this one on the moon. Yep, mm-hmm. that's the only place that I know of where there are craters. <laughs> July 30th, 1864, a battle between the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, commanded by General Robert E. Lee, and the Union Army of the Potomac. I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah, I I think you are. I think it is. Commanded by Major General Ambrose Burnside. After weeks of preparation, on July 30th, the Federals exploded a mine, blowing a gap in the Confederate defenses of Petersburg, Virginia. I really hope that General Burnside is like Two-Face and has like a big burn on one half of his body, right? You know, it's like fighting in the Civil War. It was at least a possibility that you could have, you know, been burnt in some way, shape, or form. Or maybe that was his thing that he liked to do. Oh. I will burn you only on one side. side. 
Did he have any monologues, though? <laughs> he cut your sideburns off. He burned on one, them off. On one, on one side. side. <laughs> okay. It made you look ridiculous. <laughs> That's three levels of burning inside. <laughs> From this propitious beginning, everything deteriorated rapidly for the Union attackers. Unit after unit charged into and around the crater where soldiers milled in confusion. What is this? Some kind of a crater? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Grant considered the assault the saddest affair I've witnessed in the war. <laughs> Yeah, because they basically opened a shooting range. They blew up this giant hole in lines. Everyone rode into the hole and went, well, this is this is actually just a hole. Yeah, this doesn't then, lead to anything. Yeah, and anyone who survived and who could pick up a rifle just poked over the side of the crater and just have at it until they There's ran out of ammo. There's a new feature on the battlefield. Take it before the enemy does. <laughs> well, but hold on. It's the Union that blew the hole. Yeah, and then and the Union the... rode into it. Right, but they didn't ride out of it. No, they didn't. They couldn't. Mm, no. I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a panic at, in any crowd. Right. The exits tend to get blocked first, and then whoever wants, you know, instead of a fire, it's just guys shooting oh, it's like down trying at to, you. It's trying to get off SkyTrain. Exactly. That, okay. that sign says, stand back until people get off, but nobody listens. No. Mm-hmm. This may have been Grant's best chance to end the siege of Petersburg. Instead, the soldiers settled in for another eight months of trench warfare. In that one crater? I guess so. <laughs> Burnside was relieved to command for his role in the debacle and was never again returned to command. Oh, no burning of sides any longer. It's time for a pop quiz. All right. Here's an easy one. What was the Western Front? What wasn't the Western Front, if you ask anyone <laughs> in Belgium at the time? You know things about history, Kevin. It, soldiers probably gave, it was like a nickname for their, you know, junk. Oh. Oh, oh I, I haven't seen a prostitute lately. Old squad on the Western Front. You know what I'm <laughs> saying? Oh, man. <laughs> I, even I didn't see that one coming. Uh, the Western Front, is the, that's the line of trenches uh, on the Western side of Germany. During World War One, Germans headed for Paris but were routed at the Battle of the Marne by the French and British allies. With orders to retreat, the German commander decided his troops must hold onto those parts of France and Belgium that Germany still occupied. His men drug, dug trenches that would provide them with protection, blah, 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 blah. The allies soon realized that they could not break through this line, and they also began to dig trenches. After a few months, these trenches had spread from the North Sea to the Swiss frontier. For the next three years, neither side advanced more than a few miles along this line. They became known as the Western Front. Mm-hmm. You guys stay here until we develop technology for cl- killing everybody in those other trenches. Yeah, we got the machine gun. We're going to go work on the tank. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to yeah. take a long time, and uh-huh. it'll be super disappointing. God, We're all I, over it, though. I have played so many Civilization games like that. <laughs> it's like, I, as soon as I develop bombers, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> Kevin, what do you call the front side of the trench, and what do you call the rear side of the trench? Well, the front side of the trench is the side closest to the enemy and the back side of the trench is the side farthest <laughs> from the enemy but if they gave them like maybe one word names uh the wall and the uh, bunker oh interesting the the front is the unhappy land and the, <laughs> the, the back is the party shack the front of the trench was known as the parapet okay the like rear- is in a castle yeah and the mm-hmm. rear side was the parados okay parados parapet i've heard parados is news to me yeah it's because it's the second one, Parados. Parados. Yeah. <laughs> Both were protected yeah. by two or three feet of sandbags. Well, you can't dig lower because the water table's so bloody high right around Flanders, too. So yeah. you dig two or three feet down, it's all water from there on down. <laughs> yeah. you got to pile it up. I'm not going to ask you this one first, Kevin, because it's too easy. <laughs> Joe, what are breastworks? <laughs> <laughs> Crawling along the ground underneath barbed wire on your breast to try to advance your line no it is not okay kevin your turn this is all about technique right 
this, everyone has their own personal version of breastwork. Uh-huh. Mine focuses on the central area, you know, where you try and make a rapid advance right. toward toward the conclusion. I'm talking about nipples. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the sternum. I was like, this is new. This is interesting technique. I'm going to talk near to this. You got a crib it? Yeah. Uh, no. Kevin is saying he's a pinch and twist man. Uh-huh. And nibble. Uh, no, uh, breastworks is you know, when you when you like press your face up against the wall and your breast is touching it to stay out of the way of artillery. Is it when they build up above natural ground level with sandbags and fortifications? That is correct. Ah. Above ground trenches, rocks, sandbags, masonry, tree trunks, any material that could be found to provide used to provide cover to for seven to eight feet high trenches. Uh, in some places, breastworks were as high as thirty feet. You know what was behind uh-huh. them? The Parados. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kevin, what is a fire step? Uh, a, a stack of five Frenchmen or more. <laughs> Joe. That was a good one. Thank you. A fire step. The, that is uh, the dance that you do when your feet are on fire from <laughs> chemical attacks. <laughs> when somebody, when ah, so- oh, <laughs> or when one of your... Uh, Friendly um, soldiers sticks two matches into your That's shoes. Right. Uh-huh. Wake up, Pierre! It's your turn on sentry duty. Oh, it's the fire step. You must know this one. Yeah, it's a raised portion of the trench floor where you can step up and put yourself in harm's way to loose off a few shots at the enemy. Exactly. Oh, you basically can... an overturned apple crate. Or you can fire your rifle. Yeah. Or you can. Uh, it's also the first step uh, to get up and over the top, too. Mm-hmm. In some cases, uh-huh. so also the death step. <laughs> yeah, you are you are right, uh, saying that sometimes it was made up of piles of bodies, just as uh, battlements and sometimes everything were. was made of piles yeah. of bodies. Yeah. <laughs> there was uh, even um, people using human remains to hang up their equipment to dry. Oh, so your thigh bone sticking out of the side of the trench and hang a couple of coats on it. Grody. Yeah, light a fire underneath. All right. All right. Joe, what is a duck board? Uh, a duck board that is the board that you have to go underneath to get inside the actual trench. Oh, I see. You have to duck under it or you'll hit your head. That's wrong, Kevin. Little known fact, there was, uh, they really had to test the reflexes, right? Because you need to be able to like, when your head was above the trench and you saw a bullet coming your way, you had to be able to duck out of the way. So (laughs) Oh my God, look at that bullet. That's right. And then a duck, right? Look at how fast it's moving. So they would test each other. Getting bigger and bigger. It was just like being in the gym. One guy would hold the board, and he would swing it at your head, and you would like duck out of its way, and it was just a... It was was just part of training. It was just part of training, right? right? And it was the duck board. Comprendez-vous rapide. Yeah, Think fast. Jordan, you must know what a duck board is. Duck board is a walkway in an otherwise mud and water-filled trench. Yep, to made keep of, you uh, up and out of the uh, sludge. Made of wooden slats. Oh, I see. So it's it's called a duckboard because it keeps your feet dry like a duck or something. They ran out of other words, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna call it a dry board, but we had that for some other thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't call it a dry board. Look how wet it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's what we sleep on. What? No, they would like write other plans on dry erase boards. There you go, Kevin. What is bully beef? Oh, that's where you yell at it before you eat it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe? I thought bully beef was when uh, you run out of food, so you kill the guy who's the biggest asshole in your oh, troop I see. and eat him. <laughs> Jordan? Basically, uh, beef in a tin made up of beef and assorted other parts of the cow. They're using everything. It's basically uh, the old-timey version of a hot dog. Yeah, mm. just without a casing. Yeah, what it's it basically mean? like a block of meat protein with a lot of fat in it to keep you going. Yeah, it's I part have, of a ration. I have tinned corned beef. 
mm-hmm. but right. I accept your definition. It's, it's like, that's, that's good stuff. That's what corned beef is. Yeah, it's pretty much. Kind of is a this, hot dog without casing. Yeah. Is this like spam before they branded it? Although spam is ham. Joe, what is a fire bay? Uh, fire bay, that is how we solve the Transformers movie problems. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, frontline trenches were not dug in straight lines. Otherwise, if the enemy got into your trenches, they could shoot straight along the line. Right. The French tended to build zigzag trenches. However, the British Army preferred a system where each trench was dug with alternate fire bays and traverses. Whereas fire bays were straight sections of trenches, traverses were built at angles. This limited the effect of flanking fire or shell burst. So if your trench got overrun, you could take refuge in the zigzag or uh, or in the alternate yeah, the step pattern. Fire bay. Basically, yeah. meant you had corners to hide around. Yeah, yeah pretty much. In your mm-hmm. trench. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kevin, what is a funk hole? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the look on his face. Yeah, he's. You just gave him a Christmas gift there. I know. My head. I got a head rush. It all, all everything came flooding in so fast. <laughs> Oh, your Friday night is happening all over again. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is, but I hope George Clinton is involved. The funk hole is the... I'm going to say it's where they go to take a shit. Because you get all these guys in a trench, and it's already pretty bad. You're going to have to go take your dump somewhere, and it's going to be pretty funky in that hole. I'm going to say it's a small cutout where you can sleep or take shelter from the rain. That is exactly correct. Wow. Oh. Small area scraped out the side of a trench. When it was raining, soldiers would drape a waterproof sheet over the opening and would try to get some sleep. To be fair, it could be both. Why was it called <laughs> a funk hole? I get the hole part. Because it was, hole. Because because it was, it was pioneered bunk. by John Funk. Okay. Oh. <laughs> no, is that true or is that a joke? That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> he was the first one to dig a hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some officers considered funk holes too dangerous and banned men from sleeping in them. Oh, okay. Joe, what is a blighty wound? A blighty wound? Uh, a blighty wound is, well, if I go to Warhammer 40,000, that's where the demon of Nurgle has infected the wound that you've got. Oh. You've got the blight in your wound. Okay. Uh, I'm going to guess, though, for reals, that it's uh, just an infected wound. Kevin, that's not correct. No. Oh, that is not correct. Oh, that sounded pretty correct. Be lighty. Uh, it's when it glows in the dark when you get shot. Mm-hmm. The bullet was so hot. <laughs> And it like left a, a, a glowing wound. I'd like to go with glowing wound, but what it really is is any wound severe enough to take you out of the front lines. That's right. Because a term commonly used as a term of endearment by the expatriate British community or those on holiday to refer to Britain is blighty. Blight. Oh, old, okay. bl- their old blighty was a common sentimental reference, mm. suggesting a longing for home by soldiers in the trenches. And so you got a bloody wound. It's like it's the you're million going, dollar wound. Yeah, you're going home. Right. So what, uh, what what would constitute a bloody wound? Is that a, a, if you got shot really badly in the foot? Any wound serious it? enough to require recuperation away from the trenches, but not serious enough to kill or maim the victim. So what would be the best bloody wound? Would it be a, a foot, like where your foot was blown off? Is that as good as it got? Or a hand? You mangled some hands, so you couldn't pull a trigger no more? Anything or- that wouldn't affect your post-war ability to make a living for yourself. So probably the foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not the leg. Yes. You know, maybe a finger, but not the hand. Right. Definitely not the face. Right. Or the eyes. <laughs> you need those. Yeah. yeah. Kevin, what is a trench sweeper? Uh, that is the worst job ever. Oh, you you think- just sweep that trench. Just, thinking- that's what they, It's busy work. Where they take that soldier who's like more, more harm than good. And you're like, all right, just sweep the trench. I'm going to guess it's some kind of weapon, probably a machine gun that sweeps fire across it. Oh, that's but it, closer. But it could be a flamethrower for sweeping people out as well. I don't know if we had flamethrowers in World War One. We sure did. Okay. A specialized group of fighters called trench sweepers cleared surviving enemy personnel from recently overrun trenches and made clandestine raids into enemy trenches to gather intelligence. Hmm. 
Oh, Volunteers wow. for this dangerous work were often exempted from participation in frontal assaults over open ground and from routine work like filling sandbags, draining trenches, and repairing barbed wire in no man's land. This is a lesser of two evils right yeah. here. Okay, all right. You got two choices. You can go over the top yeah. and march right into the maw of into this machine, like, gun. machine gun nest, yeah. right? Or in the dead of night, you can crawl across no man's land with nothing else really going on to clandestinely sneak into a trench and steal intelligence and come back to us. Do I get to wear a dark toque? <laughs> yes. <laughs> The the ladder, <laughs> trench sweeper, or of Good course, Lord. or of course, you clandestinely sneak about twenty feet out of your trench, wait for the night, and then come back and go. Yeah, I didn't find anything. Yeah, I didn't uh, see. I couldn't, uh, couldn't find the other side. Uh, so, uh, uh, just a quick round of killed three guys know, though. Just a quick vote. What would you take? Oh, the night shift stuff for sure. The trench sweeper. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I uh-huh. have to agree with that. You guys have a lot of confidence in your ability to sneak and uh, get in and out. Yeah. Uh, so you're I, thinking that you just I hide think behind, I would... you just let everyone go a little bit further than you and the over. Daytime assault. I think I'm so incompetent at warfare that I will take the random chance right. of survival okay. <laughs> than relying on my own skills. And Torn, I mean, let's to be honest. Stay alive. You're not sneaking under any barbed wire. <laughs> well, at least I'll sign up for it. All right, okay. And then you get hung up. You get hung up on the barbed wire. And you're like, yeah, Atkinson, yeah. you're going first. <laughs> Last question, Kevin. In World War One, how long would a soldier have to be in a trench? Uh. Until they're shot, or they get a bloody wound? <laughs> no, that's not true. Oh, yeah, they, they they had like tours of duty kind of thing. Kind of, yeah. Uh, four months. I don't know. Do you know this one? I think it was ten days out of every thirty. Mm. From as little as one day to as much as two weeks at a time before being relieved. Oh. A general pattern for trench routine was four days in the front line, then four days in close reserve, and finally four at rest. This was at least for the British, I believe. Although this varied enormously depending on conditions, the weather, and the availability of enough reserve troops to be able to rotate them in this way. Okay. The 31st Australian Battalion once spent 53 days in the line at Vieille Bretonneux. But such duration was a rare exception. I Yeah, I've always had this vision of them being just stuck. Like, right. not, you know, you watch the Blackadder was fourth. Yes. And they're just they're there in, all the time. You know, they're there all the time. They're desperately trying to get back home. They're desperately trying to get time out of the trench. Uh, yeah, who, you know. Who knew that uh, pop culture would lie to me? Oh, uh, you know. <laughs> Damn you, pop culture. Comedy. You're saying they were taking dramatic license to make the story go further? Yep. So a few basics about the World War Trench system that we may not have already covered. Okay. Uh, As the Germans were the first to decide where to stand fast and dig, they had been able to choose the best places to build their trenches. The possession of the higher ground not only gave the Germans a tactical advantage, but it forced the British and French to live in the worst conditions. Most of this area was rarely a few feet above sea level. As soon as soldiers began to dig down, they would invariably find water two or three feet below the surface, as Jordan said. You've got your uh, barbed wire entanglements. you got your machine gun posts. Um, you got your short trenches called saps dug from the front trench into no man's land, which was about usually 30 yards forward of the front line and were used as listening posts. Okay. Mm-hmm. The three rows of trenches uh, behind the front lines the were support and reserve trenches. The three rows of trenches covered between 200 and 500 yards of ground. Communication trenches were dug at an angle to the front line trench and was used to transport men, equipment, and food supplies. Mm-hmm. We'll put up a little graphic of the entire trench system so people can go to CausticSodaPodcast.com and see how this works. Uh, no Man's Land contained a considerable amount of barbed wire. In the areas most likely to be attacked, there were 10 belts of barbed wire in some places more than 100 feet, 30 meters deep. If the area had seen a lot of action, in no, uh, then No Man's Land would be full of broken and abandoned military equipment. After an attack, No Man's Land would also contain a large number of dead bodies. Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about water as a constant problem for soldiers on the Western Front. I thought water was a good thing. We needed to survive. Yeah, you do. So this would like, you know, if you So the a, more the better. Yeah, yeah. the more Let's water keep it coming. trenches you, the, the better. The more water right? you have, the more alive you are. And uh-huh. water is welcome everywhere because it's such a giver of life, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Much of the land where the trenches were dug was either clay or sand. The water could not pass through the clay, and because the sand was on top, the trenches became waterlogged when it rained. The trenches were hard to dig and kept on collapsing in the waterlogged sand. Shells from the guns and bombs made big, made big craters in the ground. The rain filled up the craters and then poured into the trenches. Conditions were, got so bad that some men preferred to sleep outside their trenches. Think about that. <laughs> it, my trench is so unlivable, I'm going to sleep like in no man's land with no cover from yeah yeah though i guess if it's like raining and wet and that bad the other side's got it bad too and probably people aren't taking much time to shoot Mm -hmm. well the germans actually had it a lot better than the british because (laughs) again not only did they pick the high ground Mm -hmm. they also by a huge coincidence picked an area that was really well serviced by roads and rail right so they could bring in things like concrete sump pumps Oh. Digging equipment, digging crews, they had it way better than the British. Okay. And they still mm. lost. So Robert Sheriff, one of the soldiers, pointed out the living conditions in our camp were sordid beyond belief. The cookhouse was flooded and most of the food was uneatable. There was nothing but sodden biscuits and cold stew. The cooks tried to supply bacon for breakfast, but the men complained that it smelled like dead men. No. Oh. Well, maybe that's just dead what dead men bacon. smells like, and they bacon. didn't know until they went to the war, and now bacon just reminds them of dead yeah. men because that's what dead men smell like. Dead men smell like bacon. I, 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 feel, I feel a new Steve Martin comedy coming on. Let's talk about trench foot related to water problems. First noted by French army surgeon Dominique Jean Larry in Napoleon's army in 1812. Hmm. Okay. Prevalent during the retreat from Russia. Unlike frostbite, trench foot does not require freezing temperatures and can occur in temperatures of up to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 16 Celsius. The condition can occur with as little as 13 hours exposure. So as long as it's not warm, I would say. Yeah. Above 16 is starting to get warm. Mm -hmm. Well, excessive sweating, also known as hyperhidrosis... Maybe long, from like being nervous mm, or having somebody shoot you, for having, instance. Have, yeah. yeah, for instance. Has long been regarded as a contributory cause. Mm-hmm. Affected feet may become numb, turn red or blue as a result of poor vascular supply. The red, white, and blue feet. And may begin to have a decaying odor due to the possibility of the early stages of necrosis setting in. Now, it probably would have been hard to recognize the decaying odor of your feet with all the decaying bodies <laughs> so around So much necrosis right? around here, yeah. regardless. Ugh, these feet smell like bacon. <laughs> Is that you or that headless guy that stinks? Mm-hmm. <laughs> feet may begin to swell. Advanced trench foot often involves blisters and open sores, which leads to fungal infections. This is sometimes called tropical ulcer or jungle rot. In, in northern France. They both jungle sound rot. like speed metal names. Mm. <laughs> Left untreated trench foot usually results in gangrene, which can cause the need for amputation. But if trench foot is treated properly, complete recovery is normal, although it is marked by severe short-term pain when the feeling returns. Uh, Yes, you go from numb feet to, oh my God, my feet aren't numb anymore. So if you can imagine a perfectly normal thing like trench foot happening in the trenches, that's a great way to get sent home. Mm. Because if you let it fester Uh, long enough, you you won't be mobile and you get packed out. So what they started doing was... It's a DIY blighty wound. Pretty Mm -hmm. severe punishments for people who allowed their feet to get trench foot. So they actually put people on uh, foot watch. Mm -hmm. So you had like a foot buddy. Yeah, they would pair people up and uh, have inspections. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
Could have been more awkward. They could have been checking for syphilis. <laughs> of, of course, this is all pre-finding out how people deal with these things uh, a la Survivor. There's probably all sorts of, okay, listen. Yeah. You'll let's say a, that I'm fine. Let's make pact. But I'm going to get trench foot even though I've tried, and the next time, you'll get it. Let's get right. trench foot together. Yeah. <laughs> a new Belgian alliance well, no. is formed. If we both do it, they're going to think that we're both just oh, lying. But this time I get to go. Next time I'll cover you, and you get to go. Uh-huh. You give me your bully beef for a week, I'll let you get trench foot. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah. go. Wait, I don't want this crappy bully beef. <laughs> I just thought of a theme yeah. song. I don't want trench foot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your sodden biscuits for a week. <laughs> foot buddy. Foot buddy. Foot buddy and me. <laughs> Wherever I tread, he treads foot buddy. Foot buddy. We've got a bacterial infection. All right, let's move on to latrines and dysentery. Latrines was the name given to trench toilets. They were usually pits four to five feet deep dug at the end of a short sap. Mm-hmm. Each company had two sanitary personnel called pioneers. I'm not sure why, oh, but they were uh, called pioneers. Um pioneers whose job was it was to give to keep the latrines in good condition you know what that is that's like that's that's like calling your high school janitor a sanitation engineer kind of yeah this is like you don't want to be the shithole master you want to be you want to be a pioneer right it's like oh you're pioneering the you know shit you want to be the Scheisemeister? <laughs> Pioneers also started out building uh, dugouts as well. So they did most of the general carpentry, but I think they're uh-huh. more well-known for their uh, latrines. Uh, in many units, officers gave out sanitary duty as a punishment for breaking Army regulations. Yep, I can see that. One soldier remarked, latrines were always dangerous places because of the regularity with which they had to be used. Jerry soon came to spot such places, and believe me, they were not places to linger. <laughs> Oh, imagine getting blown up or shot while your pants are down. Oh. I mean, it's bad enough getting trench foot. When the waste filled up within one foot of the top, they were supposed to be filled in. Sometimes there was not time for this, and men used a nearby shell hole to take a crap. (laughs) I mean, you know, my problem is I'd be like, you know, probably just crapping my pants most of the time. Just like, yeah. Which would then result in? Dysentery. Oh. Oh, Okay. It's a disease caused by bacteria entering the mouth in food or water and also by human feces and contact with infected people. Oh, I thought it was... Oh, sorry. I had a total misunderstanding. I thought it was just, you know, being mean to anybody named Terry. Oh, always dysentery. Dysentery, yeah. It causes inflammation of the lining of the large intestines and results in such symptoms as stomach pain, diarrhea, vomiting, and fever. The diarrhea causes people suffering from dysentery to lose important salts and fluids in the body. This can be fatal if the body dehydrates, as we all know. Mm -hmm. Dysentery caused by contaminated water was a problem in the early stages of the war. It was some time before regular supplies of water to the trenches could be organized. Soldiers were supplied with water bottles that could be refilled when they returned to preserve lines. However, the water bottle supply was rarely enough for their needs, and soldiers in the trenches often depended on impure water collected from shell holes or other cavities. (laughs) Water was also sometimes supplied in bulk by the use of jerry cans that had formerly been used to ship diesel oil. Mm, yummy. They oh. just, yeah, they would just throw some chlorine bleach in there and then fill it up with water and ship it out to the front lines. Because as everyone knows, when you have like a thermos and then you leave orange juice in it over the weekend. Or diesel. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> you know I'm drawing a... a yeah, yeah a, no, I think <laughs> the comparison is apt. <laughs> that everything you put in there from that day forward tastes like orange juice. And just imagine doing it with diesel. So imagine... Either tasting diesel water or scooping up water from a shell hole, straining it through some uh, bedding, yeah. and it automatically tastes better. But just because it's clear doesn't mean it isn't full of, oh, I don't know, human waste. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Uh, but Parasites. maybe, maybe just maybe that diesel oil is one of those things that smells awful but tastes good, like blue cheese. Oh yeah, yeah. I never maybe about that. Maybe you can't. I'm, I'm going with Kevin on this one. You haven't ever tasted right. diesel oil, have you? You can't say it doesn't. So uh, for our done my share of siphoning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is diesel. Next car. <laughs> Why didn't I read the bumper? Moving on to gas attacks. Uh Uh-huh. The German army first used chlorine gas cylinders in April 1915 against the French army. French soldiers reported seeing yellow-green clouds drifting slowly towards the Allied trenches. They also noticed its distinctive smell, which was like a mixture of pineapple and pepper. Oh. (laughs) Yuck. Or yum. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, pineapple. Blech. The Germans are having a tiki barbecue over there. You know what I'm actually interested more about is the fact that British soldiers in the trenches in 1915 knew what a pineapple tasted like. I wouldn't have expected they had a heavy pineapple situation going on in the UK. Well, their officers were part of the upper class. Yeah. I see. And a pineapple was a status symbol gift at the time to give to another person of uh, uh, good breeding. At first, the French assumed that the Germans were advancing behind a smokescreen and orders were given to prepare for an armed attack. Okay. When the gas arrived at the Allied trenches, soldiers began to complain about pains in the chest and a burning sensation in their throats. Man, can you imagine being there for the first use of this? You don't know anything about mm-hmm. what yeah. chemical warfare or de- yeah. deadly oh, gas Oh, they're hiding in a smokescreen. Get in there. Yeah, okay, get, stand up, put your face ready to fire forward and breathe in that gas so that you can see through it. It's either a Batman or a ninja. One or the other. <laughs> I'm going to run into that cloud and hide <laughs> forever. Pineapple Ninja. Isn't that a, an app? <laughs> yeah. is, he, is he a detective? <laughs> Soldiers now realized they were being gassed and many ran away. This created a four-mile gap in the Allied line. However, the German soldiers were themselves concerned about what the chlorine gas would do to them and hesitated about moving forward, eventually allowing the Allies to close the gap. Uh, if only they'd had some practice. Yeah, mm. exactly. Chlorine gas destroyed the respiratory organs of its victims, and this led to slow death by asphyxiation. It was a horrible death, but as hard as they tried, doctors were unable to find a way of successfully treating chlorine gas poisoning. After the first German gas attacks, Allied troops were supplied with masks of cotton pads that had been soaked in urine. Oh, this is better. Mm-hmm. Wait, I pre-soaked? Guess dying, but... I guess so, yeah. It was found that the ammonia in the pad neutralized the chlorine. Can you imagine if you're the guy responsible for peeing on everybody's gas mask? <laughs> More like, beer and oh, watermelon. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. uh, oh, sorry. I had some asparagus a few minutes ago. Yeah. Oh, sorry. When four uh, diesel cans of water show up in your dugout. Oh. Or you're the... the you got to finish all these and soak these masks. The get in o- your funk hole. For some reason, one officer decided to be the supplier of the urine for all of his men. And they're all like, God, can we not just pee on these ourselves? Uh-huh. No, no, God. no. Has to be mine. Has to be mine. <laughs> has to be mine. Put that on your face. Uh, tip, Let's tip. practice. Put it up on your face and breathe in deeply, boys. Uh, no, put yes, it on your, put, that's it. Put the cotton pad on your face. Oh, I, shouldn't we pee on these before we put them on your face? Why do you have to do it <laughs> no, while no. they're everyone, on our face? I, I say, everyone lie down. Everyone lie down. I must be, it must be administered right while it's in position. You there, yes. film it. <laughs> it was important to have the right weather conditions before a gas attack could be made. When the British Army launched a gas attack on 25th September 1915, the wind blew it back into their faces. Of the advancing troops. Ah, karma! There's a rumor going round, and I learned this on the Flanders tour, that mm-hmm. the Germans waited, I think, a month and a half for prevailing winds. They were watching the weather reports and keeping an eye on everything, and they had little windmills showing wind direction okay. before they opened their cylinders. And I heard that the British didn't. They just buried their cylinders, and then it was game on. 
We're ready? Okay, let's do this. Oh, the wind's blowing the other way. Why mm-hmm. didn't we check that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This problem was solved in 1916 when gas shells were produced for the use with heavy artillery. This increased the Army's range of attack and helped protect their own troops. Right. Over two years after chlorine gas was used, the German Army introduced mustard gas. It was almost odorless and took 12 hours to take effect. Uh, but it was that grainy mustard that those Germans Ugh. liked so much, so you could totally see it coming. Not French's. Yeah, exactly. Eperite, I think is how you pronounce this, as it was also known, was so powerful that only small amounts had to be added to high explosive shells to be effective. Once in the soil, mustard gas remained active for weeks. Okay, so imagine spreading this stuff all over an army. Uh, A sandwich. And, yep. Mm-hmm. So you, you uh, start an artillery barrage. 10% of your shells have mustard gas, which gets everywhere. You've turned the, the wound, opposition army into hamburger meat. Pretty much. The wounded, Put mustard and tomato on top. The wounded get packed out by stretcher bearers, and then they go to aid stations. And while people are cutting the clothes off the wounded guys, they start getting affected by mustard glass. That's how, right. that's how bad this stuff was. They right. call it the worst weapon ever invented because it's, it's no matter what, how you come into contact with it, it will affect you physically. Wow. It's like the, the evil twin of air. Reverse air. I do know that one thing that's going to happen after we're done recording is you're going to have a I'm hot, going to a deli. You're going to have some bully beef with <laughs> yeah. mustard bully gas on top of it. <laughs> on a sodden biscuit. The skin of victims of mustard gas blistered, the eyes became very sore, and they began to vomit. Mustard gas caused internal and external bleeding and attacked the bronchial tubes, stripping off the mucous membrane. This was so, extremely painful, and most soldiers had to be strapped to their beds. Why was it called mustard gas? Mustard gas, when used in impure form, such as warfare agents, they are t- usually yellow-brown in color and have an odor resembling mustard plants, garlic, or horseradish, hence the name. There okay. you go. It usually took a person four or five weeks to die of mustard gas poisoning. Ugh. Yeah. All right, let's move on to self-inflicted wounds. Well, if if I'm going to be facing dying over weeks, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... Sure, the, sure I, there are several lesser of two evils going on. I kind of put this section after all the hor- other horrible stuff, <laughs> right. so you can kind of get a sense of why this would happen. Totally. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Context. It's called context. Self-inflicted wounds, or SIW, was a capital offense, and if discovered, the man found guilty of this faced execution by firing squad. A common dodge was to shoot your foot through a sandbag so the powder did not show. Shooting off a finger or two was not uncommon, or in a more extreme case, a soldier would throw some ammunition into a, brazi- a, a brazier. Brazier. Not a brazier. Uh-huh. <laughs> Although, that, if, if handy, that was also used. <laughs> Threw in a brazier and then put that in the brazier. Yeah. Uh, followed by his hand. The brass would explode and tear up his hand. Almost 4,000 men in the British Army were convicted of SIW. Oh, wow. Okay. So you know that if 4,000 are convicted, like, you know, another. Like 30,000 got away with it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's trending for sure. <laughs> Hashtag yes, SIW is trending in the Great War. <laughs> Hashtag, Hashtag SIW. <laughs> That's how they caught them all, too. Yeah, because they looked, they, they saw they their selfies. Hashtag their, SIW. No, they saw their selfie in front of the brazier with their hand in it. Hey. What's up? <laughs> well, the, oh, I got damaged in the war. Hashtag SIW. <laughs> SIW. Wait a minute. <laughs> SIW, bitches. Where did they post it? Just in their diary, in their yeah. leather bound diary. <laughs> exactly. Trench book. This will be relevant <laughs> later. Trench book. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. None of these men were executed, but they all served periods in prison. Oh, so nobody was actually ever no. executed for self-inflicted It's wounds? something they faced, but it never happened, I guess. Okay. You could be executed for cowardice, and I could see a self-inflicted wound yeah. being underneath that. So I bet there was. I know that there were executions of people who refused to go over the top. Yeah. Others killed themselves rather than carry on in the trenches. The usual method of suicide was to place the muzzle of their Lee-Enfield rifle against the head and press the trigger with, with their bare big toe. 
In some cases, when men could endure no more, they simply stood up on the fire step and allowed themselves to be shot by an enemy sniper. That's a psychological problem right but, there. Okay, again, I'm not uh, condoning suicide or anything, but if you're going to get killed, don't you want to make sure that you just get shot right through the head and die and it doesn't hurt anymore? You put your head up, that guy could wing you, yeah. could hurt, you could mm. lie you could dying just, you slowly. You could just lose your eye. Yeah, I know. Terrible. That is that is, but that just shows how desperate they were. You know what? The guys who probably stood up on the uh, on the little uh, fire, fire step. steps, mm-hmm. it's probably because they didn't have big toes, couldn't pull the trigger. From They'd themselves. already shot their big toe off yeah. in an SIW. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so Keep, they couldn't pull the trigger. Oh, this is all I got. Keep in mind, though, that both sides had designated snipers whose only job was to basically watch for people poking their heads up. And yeah. shoot them These guys the were excellent shots and quick, too. So I think if you stuck your head up and just kind of hung around for a minute, you'd probably took get your, a pretty clean headshot. Took your helmet off. No. Took your helmet off. kind of like mm-hmm. pointed both of your fingers right at your head. <laughs> Speaking of helmets, this reminds me of something I've heard. Maybe you can confirm this because I didn't double check that this is true. <laughs> right. But World War One and especially trench warfare signified the end of the uh, Germans using those big spike-topped helmets. The Pickelhauben, they're called. Because because those spikes were actually hard metal and screwed directly into the top of those helmets, which were then chin-strapped on very tight to the officers. Right. And very often people would aim for the spike that they could see, and if they would hit it, a very difficult shot, of course, it would break the neck of the guy wearing the helmet. Oh, okay. I haven't heard if that's if that's true. It seems likely, especially you could use the spike on the top as a good uh, uh, ballistic bullet drop compensator. If right, you aim yeah. for the spike, and you can judge roughly the distance. Oh, the yeah. drop will definitely get him in the face or the chest. Right. Oh. It also made it super hard for them to uh, get under the duckboard when they were training for the because <laughs> they had that extra couple of inches. That's on right. It, right. True. You've already True. forgotten what duckboard is. <laughs> Those ridiculous spike helmets, as cool as they look. They were also made out of leather. The spike was steel or brass. Right. And the helmet itself was leather. So sooner or later, the Germans were the first to notice that there was just an astonishing amount of head wounds happening in this whole (laughs) French warfare thing. Maybe we should switch to helmets. Right. With actual steel. Made out of steel or something. Yeah, Yeah. that could deflect a bullet. Trench raids. Trench raiding was a practice of making small-scale surprise attacks on an enemy position. And stealing panties. (laughs) If if, if Animal House taught me anything. That is one of the objectives. Uh Uh-huh. Other objectives include to capture, wound, or kill enemy troops. Pretty straightforward. Uh-huh. To destroy and dis- get their panties and get their panties. Mm-hmm. Destroy, disable, or capture high value equipment. For example, machine guns. Uh-huh. To gather intelligence by seizing important documents like maps, or to gather enemy officers for interrogation. Mm-hmm. Bring them back, hopefully unconscious, mm-hmm. back across no man's now, land. Tell us your plans for staying in this trench for years at a time. <laughs> Reconnaissance for a future massed attack during daylight hours. To keep the enemy feeling under threat during the hours of darkness, thereby reducing their efficiency and morale. So just being rude. Yeah, just being rude. (laughs) The worst thing you can do in a war. (laughs) And to maintain aggressiveness in troops by sending them on such missions. Right, right. You pussies, go and do a trench raid. Or like, you young guys who we can talk into doing anything, (laughs) go and do this. I heard those Germans say that you guys smell. Go get them. (laughs) We don't smell as bad as them. Raids took place at night. I think for obvious reasons. Yeah. Despite the fact that World War I was the first conflict to be fought by mechanized means, trench raiding was very similar to medieval warfare insofar it was fought face-to-face with crude weaponry. Like bayonets and, and trench clubs and mm-hmm. whatnot. Mm-hmm. Trench raiders were lightly equipped for stealthy, unimpeded movement. Typically, raiding parties were armed with bayonets, spades, trench knives, hatchets, brass knuckles, and trench clubs. Call back to our blunt weapons episode. They actually gave them brass knuckles, though. That's what I've got on my list right here. That is pretty crazy. Trench clubs were sometimes homemade from pickaxe handles uh, with an empty grenade case on top. 
Mm-hmm. Clonk. The choice of weaponry was deliberate. The raiders' intention was to kill or capture people quietly without drawing attention to their activities. And then, on the way out, you throw a grenade into a dugout where enemy troops are sleeping. Starting your day off with a bang. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> October 15th, 2013, Whittington, England. I sure it's not Whitington. It might be that too. Yeah, it probably is. It's, whether it's pronounced Whittington, it probably is Whitington, if you know They what I mean. wish. <laughs> Used to be, before all those furners moved in. <laughs> A replica World War I trench system is set to open for visitors in November. The lives of soldiers during the Great War will be put into focus at the Staffordshire Regiment Museum. The venue has revamped its trench system using some of the artifacts in its collection, including letters sent home from the front during the battles. It's a military museum that they're building an exhibit for. The 500-foot trench system contains scrape holes, living quarters and interactive exhibits, gun positions, a first... I think they used the word scrape holes, too, because they didn't want to use... Funk holes. Yeah. Yeah. In this article. (laughs) Living quarters with interactive exhibits, gun positions, a first aid station, and even a tunnel used during the period to undermine the enemy trenches that were often just a short way away. Ammunition boxes were strewn around, hopefully with live ammunition as well. Sandbags (laughs) line the walls. Original signage points the way, and the visitor is immersed in a professionally created soundscape. Soundscape mm. that evokes the trenches of World War One, France. Oh, so there's like a bunch of speakers, like along the top of the trenches. You're walking through it, going. <laughs> 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 
I like pina colada <laughs> and go. pineapple gas. <laughs> the museum is staffed by serving and ex-army personnel and volunteers who bring to life the reality of military combat. Mm, cosplay. Dude, yeah, somebody Wait jumps in the trench and clubs somebody with yeah. a trench <laughs> a trench club, right? I got my There's your real trench there. <laughs> Blighty. Uh, I paid six pounds for this. <laughs> if the tour guide tells you to go up and over and you don't go, he shoots you in the face. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this has allowed a soundscape to be created that truly reflects what many of our grandfathers and great-grandfathers would have heard on, every day almost 100 years ago. For instance, if you were being fired at a sniper, you would hear the report of the gun very differently to how it's usually portrayed in the movies and on TV, rather than just hearing the weapon going off or rounds whining past. If a sniper has you in his sights, you will hear the passing round before you hear the round being fired. Mm-hmm. This is called crack and thump. The crack is the sound of the round passing your ear, and the thump is the rifle being fired in the distance. This strange noise is created because a bullet flies faster than the speed of sound. Mm-hmm. Who knew that? I knew that. I knew that. It makes sense, but I don't think I knew it. To mark the opening of the trench system, a series of events are being planned, including Night in the Trenches, the opportunity to experience a soldier's life in the trenches. Uniform reenactors take visitors back to evoke the life lived and conditioned experience by troops during the Great War. Pass. You know what? You know what I here's here's what I foresee. Here's what I foresee. Like five years down the road, like everybody who was who was interested in this has like come and gone and seen it. Eh, been there, done that. The trench doesn't really change, so you don't need to go back multiple times or anything. It's not like Disneyland or whatnot. So it's like night in the trenches turns into like they put on like you know rave lights and like oh like you know, laser into, Floyd. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. The Great War Light like Show. Night in the trenches, like night adult night in the trenches is what you're doing, just like the Science World After Dark. I was going to suggest key party in the trenches. We could book it for bachelor nights, maybe. Okay, I have a vision of a new nightclub that has a trench theme. The Uh dance floor is no man's land in between either side. There's men in one trench, women in the other. Right. Or, I guess, uh, preferences. Mm -hmm. Let's not be completely gender strict here. Uh, And in order to dance, you have to go up and over and find somebody to dance with. Wow. And if you don't, you die. As if finding someone to dance with isn't awkward enough already. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just add a physical now, barrier. Now I have to dress up in this World War One uniform. <laughs> At the end, everybody's like crying. You, you get dragged out on a stretcher. What other news items do we have? When I was on the uh, Flanders tour, uh, the tour guide pointed out they had recently found 21 German bodies uh, in a collapsed dugout. And they were recently... Uh, Sounds like the title Put of the rest in the German cemeteries there. Yeah, I have an article from uh, July of this year. A troop of 21 German soldiers found entombed in a perfectly preserved First World War shelter has been given a full military burial nearly a, nearly a century after their deaths. Oh. Uh, the soldiers were buried alive in 1918 when a huge Allied shell exploded above the shelter, causing it to cave in. Uh, and you were saying that, like... The the collapse of the shelter was so quick that like one guy was like literally just like sitting on a bench. Yep. Another guy was lying in bed, and another guy apparently had fallen down the stairs and died in the fetal position uh, when this happened. But aside from that, they were it was just complete, frozen completely well time. preserved, frozen yep. in time, uh, uniforms yeah. intact, identification papers intact, so they right. were able to find out who everyone belonged to and notify their families. Unchewed bully beef still in the mouth. Yep. I would guess so. Do you think there was doubt in the families that they would might be found someday alive? Oh, he's or... no longer missing? <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. We kind of, you know, checked that box about 99 years ago. We kept his room the same way he left. <laughs> <laughs> One day he'll One come day home. He's going to come home. So what so they were in a bunker and like a shell or something hit the top of it and it just like pancaked on them or something? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. So yeah, it okay. Seems like... Pop culture? He wants well, to talk about All Quiet on the Western Front. 
I saw the uh, 1920-something version. 1930, I think it was. There's many adaptations of this account. I I think when I was looking it up, I found the 1930 version, and there was a TV movie, I think, more recently. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know about any of the other ones. But it's a really powerful story. I mean, there's a reason that it keeps getting adapted over and over and over again, because Mm -hmm. it's got some universal human truths, right? Oh, 1979. 1979, a television film starring uh, Richard John Boy Thomas. Based on the book by Eric Maria Remark. Trivia. Mm-hmm. After Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany in the early 30s, the Nazi regime attacked All Quiet on the Western Front and re- and Remark as unpatriotic. Imagine that. Uh-huh. In 33, the Nazis banned All Quiet on the Western Front and its sequel, The Road Back, and held a bonfire to burn copies of the books. I've never even heard of the sequel. Thanks um, a lot, Hitler. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone seen 1999's The Trench with uh, Daniel Craig? I did not. No. I watched the first 25 minutes of it, and then I got bored. Okay. Oh, well, so they were just trying to evoke the mood of what it was like That in the seems trench. to be exactly what it was. Uh-huh. Um, it certainly did evoke the mood, but I was kind of waiting for something to happen, and it was late at night, and I had other movies that I could watch as well. Uh-huh. So I didn't, I didn't. And so then I switched movies over to Beneath Hill 60. Okay. Which was an Australian film from 2010. It's it good. Shame. I couldn't find it. It was good. Oh. Mm-hmm. It was basically about some minors who had been... Um, you mean little children? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some, people under the age of 18? Some young people mm-hmm. who had been hired to dig a tunnel for some reason. <laughs> like, I would oh, think of oh. these minors to <laughs> yeah. dig a tunnel. Little hands. <laughs> yeah. Little hands, yeah. right? Yeah. You know? yeah. uh-huh. um, so there was a lot of trench stuff, but it was mostly like tunneling stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was very good. Uh, there was like flashback. It was mostly about this one guy, and there were flashbacks about having to deal with not being in the war and being constantly criticized. Oh, like before he before he decided to come to, in and yeah, do this thing as a minor, as a minor. So, and then when he got there, he was part of a tunneling company. Yeah, and there was a they were planning on blowing up the digging this tunnel and putting immense amount of charges uh, underneath some German fortification, fortification yeah, of some right. kind, yeah. blowing and, a mine. They and call the it. Germans were always yeah, exactly. And then Germans were also kind of trying to figure out what was going on in the tunnels underneath that they were digging. And yeah, it was good. There's a lot of suspense, and a lot of good characterizations, and uh, I would recommend it. A lot of mood lighting, a lot of like, shh, do you hear that? Yes, exactly. Yeah, a lot, a lot of listening of posts, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, hand-to-hand combat in tunnels that uh, Germans would try and dig and, yes. and intercept yeah. uh, the uh, explosive uh, chambers that the British were digging, and they would actually fight hand-to-hand in like these one-square-meter tunnels. Yeah, there was a one horrific. scene where somebody, where the Germans just came, burst through their tunnels suddenly, and there was just like a couple of them, and then the, the lantern got knocked over, and it was a fight in the dark. It was, it was very exciting. Oh, man. Mm. It sounds a little intense, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like really slow submarine warfare. Yeah. <laughs> slow and muddy. <laughs> Who watched Paths of Glory? I've seen Paths of Glory. I have also. It's the movie that Kubrick and Kirk Douglas worked on before Spartacus. Oh. oh. Mm-hmm. I kept it, when I first saw it, I kept expecting it to turn into a musical because Kirk Douglas is in it. Right. You know, every time you see that face, you just think, this guy's going to bust out into song. Well, then it got really good, really fast. Wasn't yeah. he in that? Wasn't he singing in that Captain Nemo movie? Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm thinking of. <laughs> right. It's the whale of a tale, I'll tell you, lads. Whale of a tale, it's true. <laughs> that one, <laughs> that one that you have all the lyrics memorized to. Yeah, that one. That's okay. I kind of watched it recently. <laughs> uh, Paths of Glory is not like that because it's a Kubrick movie, and Kubrick doesn't do musicals from 1957. It's a uh, really fascinating film about war crimes about what's sort of the honorable and good thing and just thing to do during 
times of war. Well, it's about I think it's about some some soldiers who refused to go over the top or whatever. Well, it's about a failed attack. I mean, everyone went over the top, but they got pinned down and they retreated almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And this was basically considered a mutiny. So then it was was the like trials and stuff. It was a war movie and courtroom drama. Oh. Right? Yeah, because you can't shoot 300 people, but you can pick one man from each platoon and execute them. And then you, they talk them down to eventually three men, mm-hmm. all three of which they aren't really... They could, there's nothing they couldn't have uh, done. Really. Yeah. It's certainly a commentary on war and kind of the crazy shit that happens in war. And right. maybe war is not such a good idea and blah, what? blah, blah. What? I always thought it was a commentary. Like I think that was just a metaphor for the, the leadership of World War One, Right. And how... Removed it and, was. Yeah, and how uh, removed and, and clueless these generals were. Mm-hmm. How about uh, Band of Brothers? I know that in that one scene uh, that their assault on the German trench actually really happened and yeah. became the standard way to assault trenches. Yeah, it's, they still teach that assault at West Point. That's, yeah, that's what they said, mm-hmm. at least it, at the end of Band of Brothers, which yeah. is... Uh, Braycourt what, Manor? Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, Braycourt Manor Assault. Yeah, a Band of Brothers is one of my favorite things that have ever been made in the history of ever. It's pretty mm. great. Yeah. It's, I, it's some of the best television ever commissioned. Yeah. Jordan, how many times have you watched the series? We have watched it every year on November 11th since it came out. We have a few people over. And, and we do a spend marathon? The enti- yeah, we do the whole thing. And we eat the same food as them. We don't dress up or anything. But <laughs> You're not weirdos. Well, yeah, we're not nut jobs. Come on. And the episode that you're talking about, the trench assault, is yeah. mo- maybe my favorite sequence in the entirety of the thing. That they there's a German artillery position that's bombarding the the landing craft yeah. on the beach, and the Band of Brothers, of course, are paratroopers, so they've they're behind enemy lines, mm-hmm. and so it, this is exactly what they're there to do. They're there to take out bridges and defend positions and hit artillery positions, then relieve the bombardment on the troops landing on the beach. And yeah, so they this group of I think there's six of them. There's like six of them going to take this uh, this position out that has like four giant howitzers in it. That's all defended in trenches, and uh, it's it's pretty tense. And what they do is uh, they end up getting into the trenches, taking out one gun, and then using those trenches as cover because again they're not all in a line, right? In order mm-hmm. to assault all the rest of them. So once they get into that same trench, they're able to go along the side and, and just attack those German soldiers. The best part was when they started attacking one trench from a different trench, mm-hmm. and the Germans got so confused that they started shooting on one of their own trenches yeah. that wasn't hadn't been taken yet. Yeah. So you had Germans shooting at Germans for a little while. It was that's uh, the best possible outcome. There is, <laughs> I mean, there's no way taking that position was a cakewalk, but those Germans seemed fairly complacent up until the very end. Like, well, I think they didn't really realize there were other there were enemy forces in the area because they seemed to be taken by surprise for at least 20 minutes of that episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, going which like, is probably exactly what what yeah. happened. They're just like, I can't believe they weren't being well, attacked. Yeah, how be, rude! They would be thinking, how did soldiers get behind us? Yeah, yeah. we've got a line here. Yeah, I can't imagine because what happened was they literally dropped from the sky. <laughs> Wait, like, nobody does that. You didn't oh, do that before. <laughs> you you uh, drop bombs, you don't drop people. Yeah. And the Americans said, "No, we're dropping people." That's a great slogan. <laughs> drop bombs, not people. <laughs> bombs, not people. Wait, what are you for and what are you against? <laughs> it's a very confusing message. <laughs> You're either pro-war or just like against dropping people because it would hurt them, which seems <laughs> it's don't you should drop people, but so, bombs I don't. Somebody's got to do the good, bad math on that. No, that slogan only works if the dropping people is without parachutes. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh. Right. <laughs> Expect to see me in a in a riot somewhere with yeah. that sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with like, nice. I don't know if we should tear gas this guy or <laughs> give him a coffee. Speaking of television series, mm. you guys pretend to be some TV execs. Okay. okay. And I'll be a filmmaker with my pitch. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I eat a steak while you're doing this? <laughs> Please <I'll> do. <laughs> put some put some mustard gas on my sandwich. All right. Time is money, son. Let's hear what you got. Now it's the early nineties. Okay. Keep that in context. Okay. Uh, the show is in the early nineties, or your pitch. The pitch in the early is 90s. in the early both. Okay. Well, I'm high on cocaine. Okay. Right? I'm wearing a okay. chunky belt with shoes to match. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be seventy episodes. Seventy. All right. We're going to shoot on location around the world. Okay, that's good. I get to travel. Each episode will be $1.5 million. Holy shit. So you want $105 million. Okay. <laughs> It'll be shot on 60 millimeters, though, rather than 35 to save a little money. Okay. Okay, that's ridiculous. All right, that's going to look stupid. Uh-huh. The series will be designed so that each pair of episodes could either be broadcast separately or as a two-hour film-length film. Oh, that's wise. That's each. actually smart. The reason that you come up with that is because then you can sell it in different territories in different formats and mm. maximize your uh, amount of revenue. Okay, right. my finger's right. still hovering over the button that will send you down to the sharks. <laughs> oh, right, the oh yeah. Door. No, we've got the giant red X's in front of our <laughs> desks, right? And there's and when all three X's are lit up, you yeah, you fall through the <laughs> so Mr. Far. Burns with the Mr. Burns style trap door. Right. So far, it's a no for Would me, you, Soren. And we hit it all, and then the door opens. Would you mind taking one step to the left, please? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have three actors playing the character, the main character, at different ages. Okay. It'll be based on a popular movie character, but we'll change the logo. All right. So this is turning into the story about uh, Mucky Mouse. Does anyone have an idea what I'm talking about? Because this was a TV no. series. No idea. This is a TV uh, series combat. So it's 70 episodes, one and a half million per episode. Shot around the world. Three different characters playing the same person through different times. Three different actors. Three yes. different actors playing the same characters through time. Something to do with Bob Dylan. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Really? Oh. Shot on 16 millimeter. Yep. I cannot believe that because I watched a couple episodes of that. Yeah, I do. I cannot believe that made it to seventy episodes. It didn't. It made it oh. to thirty-one. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. commissioned seventy. Yeah. Had the series been renewed for a third season, Young Indy would have been introduced to younger versions of characters from the films, like Abner Ravenwood okay. and Renee mm-hmm. Belloch and okay. Zala. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> During the production of the series, Lucas became obsessed with the Crystal Skulls. He originally called for yeah. an episode which should have been part of the third season involving Jones and his friend Belloch searching for one of the skulls. You know what? If he'd have been allowed to make that in exactly. the TV series, yeah. it might never, exactly. that movie might never have happened. They didn't Don't make we... a movie uh, with the Crystal Skull. <laughs> no. That no. didn't happen. That never happened. Never That's true. Happened. That's not, I, I, someday they're going to make Indiana Jones 4. Mm. Someday. I just got off my medication to get over that. Yeah, I can't wait until they make the fourth movie. Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Hopefully they'll cast Kate Blanchett in it because she's great. She is great. <laughs> Clint Eastwood was approached to play the elder brother of Jones but turned it down despite a $10 million offer. Ooh. Whoa. So why am I talking about this on the Trench Warfare episode? I don't know. Because of the episode Trenches of Hell. That was a long intro into, in this one show, there was an episode with trenches. He drives by a trench. Having joined the Belgian army to fight in the Great War under the pseudonym Henri Defense. Henry Defense? Yep. <laughs> okay. Indiana Jones is thrown into the thick of the Battle of the Somme in a vivid depiction of the terrible hell of trench warfare, including flamethrower and gas attacks. Oh, okay. And he meets the English soldiers and poets Siegfried Sassoon and Robert Graves. Really? Oh. As, as young men in the army. So he, let me get this straight. He doesn't meet Robert Service? Come on. 
This sounds made up. His name is Henry Defense. Imagine Henry Defense and Robert Service hanging out. <laughs> oh, that's a, like that's a new TV show, Defense and Service. That's right. Uh, so I watched this episode, and I've watched a couple of episodes since it was broadcast mm-hmm. for this podcast. Yeah. I just don't. It's just not Indiana Jones. Mm. Yeah. No, the only There's no he- whip. There's no hat. There's no cocky attitude, really. Yeah. Oh. There's no smarts mm-hmm. well, there's a little bit of smarts he's but just not doing like... a max of ten thousand year old mouse in this, <laughs> pretty, much, you know? just, pretty much here's yeah. another historical event let's stick this guy in here i mean really the only young indiana jones you need to see is the little opening sequence from the third movie yeah. where you get all the origin stuff and river phoenix was great yeah wasn't this the the show kind of felt like uh forrest gump indiana jones where you're just <laughs> yes. kind of jamming him into whatever yeah. historical, historical event, event and he could. didn't really i mean he kind of took an active part in a lot of the stuff but in this episode so most of these stuff was just happening to him. He's just an observer. Right. Life yeah. is like a lost city of artifacts. <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing. When you're in the trenches of World War One, that's probably what most soldiers felt like. That's stuff true. was just kind of happening true. to you. I mean, he, would, any he would volunteer for missions, but it always seemed like he didn't really have any motivation apart from, right. well, I guess I'm the hero. And the other mm-hmm. soldiers looked at him like a dilettante. <laughs> yeah. My mama what are you even always, doing here? My mama always said... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been shot in the face with a 303. No, I had it and it was funny. And then you guys kept talking and I was waiting and then I just lost it. Life is like a bunch of funk holes. No, it was. <laughs> you never know who's sleeping in there. <laughs> Passchendaele? Uh, I couldn't even make it through. And it's about one of my favorite subject matters the First World War. I couldn't even make it through with that. Hmm. Uh, little Passchendaele trivia that you may not be aware of. It's the most expensive Canadian feature film of all time. Oh, that's too bad. We spend more money on that movie than any other feature film in Canada's history. Even that's terrible, and it's awful. It is an awful movie. Even yeah. Canadian Bacon with John Candy. Uh, that's not a Canadian movie. It was made by Michael Moore. What? <laughs> Outrage! So Passchendaele's from 2008 with Paul Gross, who did everything. I believe. Yeah, he wrote, directed, produced, and you know what? He maybe should have focused on one of them. Maybe should have hired a writer. Uh. Maybe. Did he and, write the story? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he wrote Paul, it. Come he on. directed it. He acted in it. He produced it. He did everything. And he probably should have hired a couple of those jobs out. Number one, he should have hired a different writer. Always number one, yeah. a writer. Ugh, the, the script is so bad. If it means that you have to use puppets instead of CGI, mm-hmm. spend the money on the writer. Yeah. Are yeah. you listening, Hollywood? <laughs> well, the... this wasn't Hollywood. This is Toronto. Hollywood North. Mm-hmm. What's... East. What's the no, Hollywood Northeast? Hollywood North. what, so what's the premise of the movie? Focuses on a uh, character who's in Canada, and he's a uh, an army recruiter, and he's been sent stateside because he was in the war, and then he had to come back because he had an injury or shell shock or some bullshit, and then uh, uh, he falls in love with this girl, and her brother gets conscripted, conscripted, so he volunteers to go back to the front. To protect her little brother. Sounds like you were really paying attention to this movie. Yeah, watched it. (laughs) Point of order, he went back province side, not state side. Okay. And I think also the woman he's falling in love with, uh, her family is being victimized for having German heritage as well. They just threw that in there. Also, we were mean to Germans. Write that in there. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, is that it's called Passchendaele because it's supposed to be about the battle at Passchendaele. Um, But the first nine-tenths of the movie happens not in the war. (laughs) Well, yeah. not nine tenths, not that bad. But yeah. like, first sixty-five percent of the film is in Canada, 
And then the and last. We all like, know how boring that is because we live here. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was on the prairies too back in 1915. Oh, that's boring. Yeah. Yeah. It is not interesting at all. I thought the four scenes of going to get Tim Horton's coffee was a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's how they paid for the movie with all that product placement, yeah. right? Uh, they did drink it. They made it period though. They had the mugs instead of the styrofoam right. cups, right. right? How about a nice steaming cup of shut the fuck up? It made roll up the room to win really hard though. Roll up the steel rim. <laughs> yeah. No one wins. You want to know why? Because <laughs> Passchendaele. Uh, yeah, and it's got, uh, you know, I don't recommend anybody watch it, so I'm going to spoil the ending. <laughs> the, the war's over and a bunch of people are dead. No, no. Spoilers. It's, it's even worse. He's like crawling out to no man's land to save somebody, uh-huh. and a bomb goes off right next to the person he's going there to save, and it blows their body into the air, uh-huh. and he lands, gets no. caught up in the barbed wire on a fence, so he's hanging there like Jesus on the cross. Oh. He like looks up and he sees the person he was going to rescue from No Man's Land hanging exactly in like Jesus position on a cross, hung up on barbed wire mm. and a piece of like uh, fencing. And, and then there's a smash cut to Paul Gross and he's going, huh? Get it? <laughs> get it? Get huh? it? And get then it? sound huh? goes. Sacrifice? We sacrifice. They, they, they sacrifice themselves for our sins. <laughs> I wrote it. You get it? You get it? Huh? Huh? <laughs> yeah, he actually turned to the camera and went, ah? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And then fade to black. And then Soundgarden starts up. Yeah. I would see this movie. I would watch that. Yeah, they couldn't afford Soundgarden for this movie. Uh so it was uh yeah oh and he has sex in the trench with the nurse. No, come on. Yes. Nobody did that. I know. Now I'm angry. Man, <laughs> she's going to get something far worse than trench foot. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, it's horrible. It's so I wanted to like it so bad. I mean, Enemy at the Gates when they had the sex scene. Okay, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Seems plausible. Yeah. This does not seem plausible. Oh yeah. Was the the, the title of the film Enemy at the Gates a metaphor for <laughs> Yeah, who knows? It's, it's another euphemism. Friendlies yeah. at the Gates. <laughs> Blackadder Goes Forth is set entirely in a trench. This is the fourth season of Blackadder. This is the fourth season of Blackadder. So for those who don't know, Blackadder uh, is a, I I believe, BBC. It's English. Mm -hmm. anyway, BBC Mm -hmm. TV series. Starring Rowan Atkinson. uh, Starring Rowan Atkinson, also known as Mr. Bean. Mm -hmm. Comedy Uh, genius. Each series of Blackadder is set in a different historical period, moving forward through time, and all English. Uh, Blackadder Goes Forth is set during World War One. The entire season is him just desperately trying to get out of being in trench warfare, right. uh, trying all sorts of wacky hijinks to get sent home mm-hmm. and to be declared unfit and to not have to be in this horrible trench. And he's got a bumbling manservant. He's got his bumbling Tony manservant, Robinson. Tony Robinson, mm-hmm. Baldrick. Uh, again, these characters are all mirrored throughout every single uh, Blackadder season. You should watch them. They're all really, really uh, Hugh good. Laurie plays the um, dim bulb officer uh, in the trench with him. Whose name I totally know. It's not. Uh, it's not Melchit. Melchit is Gen- General Melchit. Yeah, uh, it's not darling. And it's not darling. It's um. Hello, darling. <laughs> Hugh Laurie plays Lieutenant George. Mm-hmm. The thing about it that really, uh, to me, uh, elevates Blackadder goes forth is that final scene in the final episode. Uh, the final episode. I mean, this is a spoiler. Let me guess. They all go home safe and sound you... and kiss their girlfriends, wives, and mothers on the lips. Because Have sex with a nurse. The exact opposite. They finally get told to do their big final push. They go over try, the top. They go over the top. They try. Uh, Blackadder tries to get himself declared insane mm-hmm. uh, so that he doesn't have to go. Completely fails. And then the last about 10 minutes of the episode is really just them kind of, well... 
We're, we're going, going over, over the, the top. top. Here it goes. And there's a few like really good, oh, desperately bl- trying to be funny in a horrible situation attempts. Yeah. And Blackheader doesn't, I mean, he says multiple times in the course of that episode, uh, where none of us are coming back. We're yeah. going over the top and we're not getting away and we're yeah. all going to die. And But so all in a joking fashion. That, yeah, that entire scene is actually available uh, on, on YouTube. We're going to include it in the show notes for this CausticSortaPodcast.com. And it's super touching. And I remember watching it the first time and I could not believe that a comedy had done that ending. Oh, I got choked up. Gone, like yeah, it I actually know. like gave me goosebumps. I was yeah. like... Is it seriously going to end like this? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure every dedicated soda jerk has watched all of the Black Adders. But if you haven't, run, don't walk. Yeah. They're utter genius. And actually, Black Black Adder the first, the first series is actually the weakest of all of them. So you could skip the first one. Uh, Yeah. Start with Black Adder 2 and you wouldn't have a problem. But if you're a completist, go ahead and watch it knowing that it gets better. Um, in the first one, does he have a really hokey, put on sounding voice? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I can't right. stand those episodes. I can't get through. And what's yeah, his face? Tough. The guy who played in uh... Ryan Blessed. That's right. That's, yeah. the guy. <laughs> That's all you needed to know the actor. I love that. Yeah. Thanks, Jordan. You're welcome. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside, and when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy. Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson, while suspended by hooks over a pack of hyenas. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook. Tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Podcast. Email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. I'm a fan too. Thanks for listening. And then on December 7th, Carol's in the Trenches, a reenactment of the 1914 Christmas truce with carols sung in the trench system. Oh, what, was the, what was the first carol that was sung in the trenches? You know, O Tannen Bomb. But it's not going to. It's a. Uh, it's a Sisyphian. Sisyphian? Oh, Jesus Christ. Hold on. Let me start that again. Just say, pretend you have a lisp and it'll all, all the problems will solve themselves. <laughs> Sisyphian? Sisyphian? When, when you're done, you let me know and I'll do mine. Like if you need to do it a couple of times. Maybe like hit his heart, hit him, hit him in the shoulder really hard. <laughs> Maybe stab me with a sharpened toothbrush. Push his microphone into his face. <laughs> <laughs>